Hi, Broadway fans. Welcome for another week of Broadway Breakdown here on Popcorn Talk. We're going to talk Jersey Boys, the film this week, so stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Broadway Breakdown. I just wanted to like the music. But I have to do them away from microphone skill. So I have to like a whole arm movement as <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, like really far up. Hey guys, welcome. Thank you guys for joining us for this week's discussion of Jersey Boys, our film discussion. I'm your host, Brianna Phipps. You can find me everywhere, bphipps14, except for Snapchat. That's bphipps1214. And Jackie is back in studio with us today. Hola. I'm 123JackieB on all platforms, except for Snapchat, where I'm JackieB123, because screw you, Snapchat. <laughs> and we have a new guest in this week. We have Miss Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. Yes, I'm Marissa Serafini. You can follow me on Twitter, at SerafiniTV. No numbers. <laughs> Keep it simple for you all. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is just... I didn't play this song last week because I wanted to like have it for my final week of the show. Because it's I my favorite song. song. You guys will do your diva songs song. today, but like my diva song was Oh What a Night. I just Every time I listen to it, it's just so, You want to dance. It's so yeah. good. That's what the Four Seasons did so well. Their music just makes you want to dance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get just right into the show. Uh, what are your guys' overall thoughts on this film? Mercy, you want to start off? Um, I was really excited to watch this film because I knew when I was coming out, being a fan of the Jersey Boy production as well. Um, Clint Eastwood, as a director, like he's kind of hit and miss with me. But when I knew the movie was coming out, I was like, uh, I have to watch it. I have to cover it, uh, of course. So I was really excited to watch the film. Um, there are some things that didn't translate as well from production to film. But as a film, I think it captured the essence of what the Jersey Boys was. It captured the tone and the feel of that era. And I think it was just, visually, it's really well done. I wouldn't really call it a musical. I would call it a movie with music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's because when you bring someone like Clint Eastwood on, they're going to try and, like, I guess, make it less like a musical and make it more like Gran Torino. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I I enjoy the film because I enjoy the music, and I think this is probably what a lot of critics felt, was that the film drags in certain points. Um And to me, the reason that it drags in certain points is because you only have the music playing in the background. I I honestly think that the formula would have been better if they kicked up the music a notch. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to like this film a lot. And there are parts I really did. Like, the acting I thought was phenomenal in the film. Uh, Obviously, the musical score is great. And I like the fact, and we're going to talk about that they didn't create an original song for it. Um, why but would you? It's the music of the four seasons. Because it's yeah. Hollywood and they do original songs for Oscars. <laughs> I don't think it's necessary because these this is a group of real guys. And if they created a new song, yeah, I wouldn't mind it. But I don't think it was necessary. It's like going yeah. to Mamma Mia expecting the hits and then they throw in some random ass song that oh, you don't you care like about. They did. Yeah. <laughs> Just like they did. Um, yeah, so I there are parts of the film I liked, but I did as well feel like there was dragging points where I was kind of like, let's get back to the music. Because that's what the play is, and that's what I saw first, so that's what I was expecting and wanting. Um, so let's talk about the music. Let's go into it. So there was no original song, like we said, which for a film adaption is strange. Usually they always try to add a film for Oscar bait, uh, which Jackie loves. She always loves to talk about the Oscar bait. <laughs> <laughs> I hate those Oscar bait songs. I hate them. Um, so annoying. But they also kept all the songs from the musical which is also kind of 
somewhat unheard of. Usually they cut a few songs for time. Can, can the audience hear this extra yeah. noise? That's just no, my question. Okay. Um, <laughs> so what do you think about that, that they kept, that they were able to keep all the songs at least in? I think it's great, but at the same time, I still have the same criticism I had before, which is like you would see, you would hear certain songs play under certain ce- mm-hmm. scenes, and they you didn't you couldn't hear them very well, and so part of me is thinking you would have had more momentum throughout the whole um, throughout the whole movie if you maybe would have had more singing or or pumped up those songs in some way. I don't I don't know how I'm you know, but. Right, and like I like the fact that they kept a lot of the their songs in it, the all the recognizable ones, the iconic ones, and I liked how just the storytelling in which we talked before we went live is that they kind of kept a chronological order, um, but although there are some other songs that were cut, but I think for a film, yeah, I think they were nicely spaced out throughout the whole film. That it wasn't so overwhelming with just song after song after song. And I liked every song that we heard was all the ones that we already know just from pop culture. Mm-hmm. I agree. Like, I like that they had all the songs. I thought some of the choices they made were weird. Like, how, like, you would think during the montage songs, those would be the ones kind of playing under, like they did with short shorts. That made sense to me. Um, but when it was like the studio recording songs and to have them kind of play out longer in some respects, like, I thought that was a weird choice to make, especially because those weren't their songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was part of the reason the film drug for me is because we spent a large portion of this film on them becoming a band, which is a very short part of the play. So I don't know if it would have changed anything to kind of make some of those more montage moments, just the underneath kind of like flashby moments, or like them singing and then transitioning and walk into different parts of their life. I don't know if that would have helped or not, but I think I kind of would have liked it to be a little less where this whole song is playing. And we're watching this whole yeah. song play, and like Sherry is like, "Oh, we hear Sherry singing," and then it's like in the kind of background while they're practicing, while this guy's talking about it on the radio, and then it's the full performance of Sherry. It's like a song that's three minutes is now a ten-minute part of the movie. Understandable. Um, what I liked about what the film did that I just understood better as an audience member, I liked how the film clearly explained how each song was inspired and written, and like in the context of what was going on in their lives. Whereas in the play production maybe I was just maybe too young to comprehend that but I think the film did a great job of like oh this situation happened this event happened in their life which created them to do which caused them to write this song which you know created x y and z for their next song like I I think they did a good explanation of how each song came to be yeah and I know you had you had a problem with like some of the arrangement of the songs which um, I know, which I didn't know until you had told me that they chose to do them in chronological order, which makes sense. It was just something I realized when I was watching it is that um, because I don't know why, because I love I love that song, Oh What a Night. It refers to 1963. It came out in 1975, so that's why it was the last song. Yeah, it's just the like inner person of me being like, I like that. Oh, these songs are written about these exact moments. Why right. aren't we playing them during these exact moments? Why is he not singing about losing his virginity? while he's losing his virginity. Why, when Frankie Valli's daughter died, did they not play the song about Frankie Valli's daughter dying? Why did they choose to play the song about his wife leaving? Mm-hmm. Like, those are, like, the weird moments for me of, like... Yeah, I, uh. I mean, part of me appreciated the the fact that they chose to do the songs in chronological order because they were trying to do a, like, like kind of a that thing you do 
yeah story where you where you see where you see the trajectory of the band um but for for people who loved the musical it it is a little upsetting when you see the songs that don't match certain situations and you feel and you feel so uh used to seeing that Mm -hmm. i think it also if if you're you see it like the other way and you watch the film first and then go see the show, you're going to be like, wait, why are they playing this song now? Because you thought that they'd be playing them in chronological order. I, I also think it has to do with the medium, though, because I think that people are so used to seeing things um, in a film kind of be more pedantic. <laughs> um, not not to say that like all films are like that, but they're they're used to people are used to having films tell you something explicitly, whereas there's more freedom in the theater to take license with those things. Which yeah. is, I mean, I guess we'll talk about the monologues later, but I they didn't work as well in the film because film's, film's not really a monologue medium. Yeah, I think some people like get so accustomed of being hand fed or like her spoon fed of what song is supposed to be when and where so we understand what's going on in the story timeline and i think that was one of my bigger issues with this movie that it was the timeline in their span of the career I, there was really no clear cut of oh 6 months passed and mm-hmm. then another 6 months passed and then 2 years passed like if we had just gotten a slater like where are they in their lives or like what song came out if you don't know like what exact year the song came out it would be kind of hard to follow, like, where exactly in the point of success are they in the band's mm-hmm. life, depending on what song. And actually, Frankie helps Valley, with storytelling. Uh, had an issue with that as well, because he felt that the film wasn't properly time-wise portraying their rags to riches to rags. Yeah. Because you never really fully get, especially at the end, you don't get that they, like, then again went back to rags, kind of. Mm-hmm. That they were not, you only have the fact that they're telling you this. You have the... The reporter girlfriend, whose name I forget, say, you know, you're never going to get out of this neighborhood. And that's literally the only reference you have to yeah, that. that. And, uh, and Christopher Walken telling them, like, oh, well, you're going to lose this much money if right. you do this. So, like, we just have to just assume after that, like, okay, they weren't rich. And I mean, and before. also, like, the play is is split up into four seasons or four parts. And, and you don't really, it's alluded to in, in the film but you don't you don't really get that you don't really get that unless you know about the play right and even visually you think that would where the film might actually translate better visually from season to season but when you're watching it you can't really tell if it's mm-hmm. winter you can't really tell if it's summer or spring so like i think that's where they had trouble of what time and where the band was yeah it definitely doesn't portray as well but talking about the band and talking about these actors, I want, let's get into them because this did have some amazing acting. And I do give Clint Eastwood a lot of credit for not overstarring up the film. And he, like, mm-hmm. they wanted to, and he said no. And he took a lot of people from the theater show, even if they weren't the people that were originally in those parts. Um, so well, let's I start. mean, John uh, Lloyd Young. Yeah, he was the original. He was the original. Apparently, was I couldn't find out who they wanted, but apparently, was not the original casting choice for the film. And then the person that was the original casting choice dropped out, and so they brought John Lloyd Young I'm in. I'm so glad they brought him in, though. I mean, he's the glue that's holding this film together, to <laughs> mm-hmm. me. He's so good at that role. And when you have someone as iconic as Frankie Valli, um, whose voice, to me, I don't, again, I don't know much about singing, but it seems like it would be very hard to match. He has such a distinctive voice. And I think that John, uh, John Lloyd Young does a good job of matching his voice, that... I don't know. It's it seems 
it seems like it would be hard if you're picking someone based on Hollywood chops versus based on matching Frankie Valli's voice. Yeah, I think for right now, like, this film is basically based on the talent of the characters rather than, like, what they were actually like in real life, their day-to-day, because mm-hmm. everyone knows this, their singing ability. No one really knows them as people. And I think that's what Clint Eastwood did great in the casting-wise, where he got the people who could embody these people, could have the talent level as them, the original guys. And, like, it didn't detract me from the movie when, you know how sometimes you can watch a movie and be like, oh, it's that big name A-list, and then that takes you out of the film for a second. And I didn't get that really out of this movie other than maybe Christopher Walken. But <laughs> but he kind of is, like, <laughs> Christopher Walken plays those roles so often that it didn't phase yeah, me. Yeah, at least right. for, with me for this one. Because I did have a large problem with Christopher Walken in another film, Jungle Book. Um, <laughs> but at least with this one, like it makes like he makes perfect sense to be a mafia boss, right? Mm-hmm. Like he has that air about him. He has that he has the Jersey accent. Like you know, he holds himself in such a way that that really worked. And for it's me. so and it's so funny. I was thinking about watching it because Christopher Walken, um, not so much now that his hair is graying, but when you look at him when he's younger, he looks very much like he's. Uh, from Germany or Sweden or he's got like that white blonde hair the blue eyes and so you don't think necessarily that he would read as Italian mob boss but his voice and his demeanor are so much like that that you just go past that (laughs) it's the gravitas yeah you know Um, but I think all of all the guys who were casted as the four seasons I think they were great because they had the talent and like I can truly believe that these guys could have been them back. Mm-hmm. And I love time. that actor Vincent Piazza who was uh Tommy. Yeah, who was in um Boardwalk, Boardwalk Empire. Empire. Oh man. He, he I believe is the only one that wasn't from the play. Yes. That was cast, right? Great. Yes. <laughs> it was like I'm pretty sure I that. Think so. Yeah, cuz Eric Berg, Bergen who played Bob Gaudio, he was in the international touring one. Yes. He opened up and then Michael Lamenda was in the international touring but he closed it. Oh, that's cool. So. Yeah, I yeah. really really enjoyed Eric Bergen as Bob Gardio. I thought he did a really he fabulous job. He did a really job. good job. Great job. I mean, I think actually all these actors did a really good job because you felt, you really felt that they had some sort of camaraderie. And that's, I mean, to me, when you're casting a film, that should be more important than do we have like this many A-list actors because we've seen so many films, the first three Star Wars films. <laughs> um, and by first three, I mean episode one, two, three. Uh, where you cast big actors and they just don't, correlate to each other. I mean, that's what's a hit or miss about casting an all-cast fil- uh, all-star film is that you either get a great film or it's just you're relying on the star power. Right. That's it. People come to see it and then after they come to see it they're like, "Oh no. <laughs> I immediately regret this decision." Um and also, I want to give a toss out to Michael Lamenda who p- played Nick Matsy because like that is one of the roles in the play that you don't really get to know. And I think that is maybe in large part due to the fact that he had died before they created the play. But th- that one scene where he just blows up about Tommy, yeah. like peeing in the sink and everything, I was like, oh my god. <laughs> like, yeah, that that's a funny scene, you know, when you watch it back, because actually during the filming, I believe Clint Eastwood, he was actually very encouraging of improv, so he let the guys actually, you know, improv a lot during that scene, but by the time that they edited that scene, it actually ended up pretty close, almost word for word, to the script. (laughs) Wow. So, like, even the improv, it became, like, pretty real to what they originally wanted. Um, Talking about the script, because I had read that Clint Eastwood 
this was like one of the only films that he had rewritten his script for like usually he goes with the first draft and this one he rewrote i wonder if that i kind of just want to know what that first draft was Hmm. because i think that that was the disservice in this film was that the script just pushed everything too far apart and made it to feel too long like it was only a two-hour film but it felt longer to me you know those films where like you go and they're really long but they feel short and Mm -hmm. there's the ones that are like not that long but you just feel are taking forever to get to places yeah well if you think about it this movie is like all dialogue there's really no over-the-top flashy musical numbers either i mean maybe the ed sullivan show and a performance here and there but Mm -hmm. it's very dialogue heavy kind of movie which makes it could like prolong the feeling of this is a long movie but i think clint eastwood he's more of a one take two take kind of person the first and second take and and then move on um for the script i know that you know frankie valley and bob gaudia themselves in real life was heavily involved in creating this so it might have been a little bit biased in the in the production aspect and i think maybe that's where clint eastwood went in and like kind of made it more broad throughout uh, the other the other problem I have um, with the, with the movie is that the female and not to say that in the 1950s females didn't have a lot of agency which they didn't but um, it's just you start this strong strong relationship with his first wife and then we like forget about her for a giant chunk of time and then they bring her back in at Christmas and then they bring her back in at Christmas and that that to me there was some sort of disconnect there and there was the disconnect where you have him like meeting and flirting with the reporter and then all of a sudden they're sleeping together and then the same thing we forget about her forget about her until the end when she's like I can't do this anymore and you're like but where have you been for the last like <laughs> 45 minutes right um and i think that's one of the things the film chose to bring in these extra scenes, which, of course, as a film, were allowed more um, freedom, kind of, to play around with things. Whereas on stage, we have only this one quick thing that we have to do. We can't have all these elaborate scenes and sets. But I think that that was what kind of like hurt the film was that in the stage, we were able to travel through so much time because they just narrated in between, like, oh, and then this and this this was happening. So they were like, by the way, let me catch you up. Whereas this one, the narrations were used sporadically. Like, they weren't actually used as much until the very end, I felt. And that didn't catch us up as well to where we were. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I agree on that. And it's funny It's funny that you mentioned that because even the little narrations that they had, I don't know what it is about it. And I don't know if it's the fact that um, a lot of these narrations were done in close-up, which for me... Too much close-up on a, on a narration in a movie, it doesn't have the same effect as somebody monologuing on stage. Okay. So it was it was obviously apparent to me where when you were watching the movie, you have this kind of like, why am I in your face all the time? This is weird. And you keep narrating, but then we kind of forget about that. Whereas it's so natural on stage. Mm-hmm. It's so natural because you're actually talking to someone. And it didn't have that feeling when you watch the movie didn't have that feeling of somebody having a conversation with you yeah Yeah, it's and I think that's where the film kind of lacks in storytelling because they're breaking that fourth wall when they're talking to you but you can't really get that live reaction back to them and breaking the fourth wall doesn't always not work in film I don't want to say that either because you think about movies like uh, Deadpool where it works very well and you think about um I'm trying to think 
I'll come up with another come up with yeah. example. I'll come up with another example. Yeah. I mean, I think that they did use it well in certain aspects. Like, Bob Gardio, when he's watching and just leans back. Sorry, I'm going with my friend. Leans Saved back by the on bell. the bar. That's not a movie. But still, it worked a lot in Saved by the Bell. <laughs> but yeah, he just turns around at the bar like he's talking to the bartender, but he's talking to the camera. I think in instances like that, where you can almost be replacing a person, made it work better than just them staring off into the distance and all of a sudden talking. Right. Right. And I liked the opening one. The opening one where you have Vincent Piazza kind of like walking around mm-hmm. and setting the scene. That seemed very real to me. But towards the end where it's all of a sudden monologue, 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 you're like, what is, what, this is a very different format from what I've been watching. <laughs> right. It felt weird because like the, the first probably third of the movie, we got the narration from the three guys and then you're kind of expecting Frankie's and you really don't get it until the end after all of that and then it was like one person at a time because they broke away from their already structured format did not have it for the last third and then to do it again in a monologue if there was just no consistency with the narration which I think was a problem in their storytelling yeah definitely 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 and that's I almost wish that this had been more of like a straight film with just songs kind of in the background completely or been a musical. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because they wouldn't have to do the narration if they had just kind of skipped over some performances maybe. Yeah. Or had them in the background or had them shortened like Walk the Line does. Yeah. Um, so let's go talking about that and going off of the film. Because it didn't do that extremely well in the box office. Like, everyone thought this was going to be a hit because it was such a hit on Broadway. But in the box office, it got, what, like a C plus? It basically is what yeah, they got averaged it out to. kind of mediocre. And it opened, like, fourth. But, again, that weekend, it was up against all these other big movies. It's like, I believe Maleficent was out and How to Train Your Dragon 2. Like, all these big sequels were, like, coming out the same weekend. So it did have a lot of box office competition on the same weekend. But also this... This is a movie that's not really geared towards the younger demographic, I would think. I, would, I think it'd be geared towards, like, my father's demographic. Yes. You, the people who grew up in the 60s and 70s and know this music. I mean, we know it because we're big into musical, but, like, I feel like the younger 20 millennials would not know this. I also feel like it's not that this music doesn't appeal to kids because, you know, I, while I'm on the older end of millennials, I still consider myself one. I enjoy this music, but at the same time, it's not its not something I would seek out if I wasn't a theater person, if that makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I had a little bit of a different thing because I grew up with listening to it because that's what my dad listened to. So I knew this music beforehand, but I will say I didn't know anything. Like, I didn't know that these all these songs were the same group. Yes. Uh, yeah. I I no, I had you know, but it's uh, it's interesting because when you get when you're when you're a kid and you're just hearing music on the radio, you might not necessarily like associate certain songs with certain people. But as you get older, it was the same thing for me. I am older, and I was like, oh, that song was also written by Frankie Valli, and that song was by Frankie Valli. <laughs> That's crazy. Like just to like you're too just too good to be true. That was like the biggest surprise. I was like, That's them. Right? That's the same people that said Sherry. Yeah. I will say in person, I guess, because most of them weren't in the group anymore. Right. It was just those two guys, Frankie and Bob. Bob See, Scott. like my dad, shout out to my dad. He like he was a big Four Seasons fan. So like I listened to all the music when I was a kid, and then when I heard about the Jersey Boys Theater, I was like, Oh, they are the same people too. Uh, but, like, I was big into musical theater in college, and we would listen to the Jersey Boy soundtrack as a warm-up. 
Like so, like it's a good I need soundtrack. Music. It's great. I mean, it, it's good. It gets you wanting to move your body, so it's a good physical warm up. Plus, mm-hmm. it's just fun to sing. And as a girl, you can sing all the songs. I know. Singing really easily because <laughs> you don't have I to lower so your enough. voice, except for like Nick Massey's little parts. I don't try to anywhere to go near those. <laughs> There's an album though that where they have songs from the original soundtrack or, or the original Broadway cast, the movie soundtrack, and then from the f- actual Four Seasons. So it's a little bit of. Everything, if you want that album. Nice. That's fun. You can put it in our um, comment section for people, maybe, like where they can buy it. Yes, I can can put an Amazon.com link. Okay, so I skipped ahead, and I forgot to go over your guys' diva songs. Um, Marissa, for you, since you haven't done this before, this is just the song of the show that, like, you have the most fun singing, that, like, if you're in your car, you're rocking out to it. Uh, I always sing the finale. Uh, Who Loves You? Yeah, Who Loves You, Pretty Baby. Like, when I'm playing, because I played the Jersey Boys soundtrack probably once every five months like I, I love the soundtrack and that's probably the first song I always go to the last song first so I love it it's so catchy and it leaves you on a happy note and I think it's, it's a great finale song to lead people on so yeah that's probably mine mine's the same as yours it's a what a night I just love that song <laughs> it's so much fun the, the best part about that song is just me singing as a kid not knowing anything about what it actually is talking about <laughs> It's the same thing as me singing Spice Girls as a kid, <laughs> watching Mrs. Doubtfire. Everything going over the And head. you can tell, the thing, I mean, I'm, I'm such a fan of disco music, and you can definitely tell that there are disco-era influences on that song that make it different from the earlier Four mm-hmm. Seasons stuff, which is really, not that their earlier stuff isn't amazing, but it's just, it's that, that little disco flavor that gets me going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So we've kind of talked a little bit of what it lost going from the stage to the screen. But I kind of want to go a little bit more into it because I do feel that this is a very different film than it was a show. Because the show kind of felt like a concert to me, whereas the the film just felt, you know, a little more like me being a, just peering into their lives rather than being a part of their lives. Right. I think that's what the biggest change was for me. I don't know. Do, what do you, do you guys think differently? On any of that do you have do you think that the stage version was able to do something better or worse I think what's great about the stage is like you're physically there and it's kind of in your face in a good way like it could be very visually exciting and like dramatic if something happens I can't imagine what the car scene looks like in real life um and I think that's where maybe the film because visually it looks different and like there's big the saturated color tone throughout. And if you're a film major, like, I'm going to watch this because of color tone, that's not what you're going to say. <laughs> it it doesn't visually look enticing to mm-hmm. watch as a film. And I think that's maybe where people might not want to watch it. It just, film, it could have been like, oh my God, in your face overwhelming. But I think that's where the film, produ- the film production lacks because I think in theater, it's more engaging where the film isn't. The film's more voyeuristic, but you're not a part of it. Mm-hmm. There are things about the film that I do appreciate. I mean, I, I appreciate that it looks like they put forth a lot of effort into like costumes and set pieces um, and things like that. That I I love watching a period piece just to see what people do with costumes and set mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, I love that scene when when they're all in um, their they're at they're at that fancy party. They're invited to that fancy party by that guy whose name I forgot. Um, and the women's costumes are so beautiful in that scene. Um, and then you know they pick on their earlier costumes, like the uh, his first wife, Frankie Valley's first wife, is like, 
you know, Frank Sinatra wouldn't wear that. <laughs> and so I, I love moments like that. I love film for moments like that. But at the same time, um, and I've said it on this podcast before, there are things that theater offers that you just can't get in film. You just can't get that that uh, monologue where it talks right to you, where you feel like that person is speaking to you and you have more creative license. Um, and I've made the comparison to Wicked before where they're making that movie of Wicked and I don't know how they're going to do Defying Gravity to make it feel like you feel when you're in the audience watching Defying yeah, Gravity. Yeah, gives you that same mm-hmm. feeling. Yeah. And I think that's a large part of it is like when I saw this show, we were all on our, on our feet during that last song during Who Loves You. Um, and like when, you know, when they're walking all back out into the spotlight one by one, you kind of get that overwhelming feeling of like... Because you feel like you're actually at a concert. Yeah. 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 And you get excited and the film just didn't deliver the excitement for me in that same way. Like, like, like I said, the acting was amazing. There was definitely parts of the film like I loved being able to go like into these different sections of their lives that we didn't explore in the theater show but I just didn't get that sense of like happy like overwhelming happiness watching it that I got with the play and you know and part of that is the use of lighting on stage we talked a lot about that this play got uh best lighting and they really used it well like in the stage version like you're backstage you're in front of the stage you're the audience you're on the side like it just makes you feel so much a part of their lives and so much a part of all of this experience that they went through, which is what I think they ultimately were really trying to convey. And as you said before, that they kind of involved themselves in the film, they took themselves out of the play. They took them out of the creative process completely, which I think maybe might have actually been what kind of ruined the film. Maybe they were too involved. Yeah. It is, if if you're talking about something that is um, has a biographic element it's hard to be objective because you experienced it and it's it's also when when you're looking at your own life sometimes things to you are really important moments that maybe like somebody outside is going to say well that might not resonate with this story that we're trying to create or with the audience so if you want to i feel like if you want to if you want to be so precious about those moments write a biography you know Because you're gonna have to do some give and take if you're if you're creating a movie or a I mean show. that's why they started off with like in the play like you ask four different guys you get four different stories yes. because that's what you get when you ask four different people they're all gonna give you them being kind of the hero usually of the story right, and everyone yeah. else being kind of the mess ups right and I, I think that's the interesting thing for the movie and the play itself like that that Rashman effect where you get. In the film, you can definitely tell that Frankie Valli and Bob Gaudio are the good guys. But if you think about it, those two in real life were a part of this production. So it might, like you said, be a little bit more objective and biased in that sense. Yeah, which, I mean, collectively, no group is going to go down because of one person um, completely. So, yeah. Unless you're the Beatles and it's Yoko Ono. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So while Tommy, you know... He did kind of destroy the group financially. Um, it was Frankie and their decision to keep faithful to him and to not let him just go down and to pay off his dues and debts and to let him, st- like, even though, like, they kept having fights to let him keep being in charge. I mean, you have to take accountability for the fact that you let that happen as well. Mm-hmm. Part of me wondering it, watching it, and is wondering, like, you're like, tell me what the fuck, you know? Because you're like, how do you rack up this much money um, and have this history with the mob, not like having it occurred to you that they're going to come after you. 
I, there was some sort of, I was like, I feel like there's a piece of the puzzle I'm missing and no one's telling me. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like in today's society, I don't think friends are that loyal to each other to take on other people's oh, debts Oh, these are anymore. mob people, though. Like, That's a little bit but, different. But having, like, the band themselves, they were friends at some point. They worked with each other, but, like, they were loyal enough to take on Tommy's debt. Mm-hmm. Where I feel like that happened in today's life. Everyone else would be the same and get out. You won't. You don't see it as often today. Yeah. Like people, definitely, I do think used to have a loyalty to each other, especially from small neighborhoods where you grew up together. Um, Mark last week had said that that's one of his favorite parts of the play is the Jersey handshake and being like, "We don't need a contract. This is our contract," and that actually would stand. Right. Mm-hmm. It meant something. Yes. Whereas today, you'd be like, "I'm not going to sign a contract. Shake my hand. Uh, <laughs> right. Now I'm taking all the money and leaving." <laughs> there is a. I mean, I know they say don't go into business with your friends, but I mean, there is a certain. There is a certain sense of when you've grown up with someone and you've been through so many things together. I mean, these guys uh, went to jail. So I think that that part of that loyalty stems from their experience with the, with each other. And I think that's kind of like how you said, like, how did Tommy not think this was going to happen? Maybe it's just he'd been helped out by the mob so many times. He'd been helped out by his friends, his family, whatever, that he always thought he was kind of above it, but nothing would ever happen to him. Yeah. Maybe it was that loyalty that kept him, like, feeling safe. I mean, this is a guy who blows his nose into towels in the... I was like, don't do that! That's disgusting! (laughs) Nasty. (laughs) All right, so let's just go down the line of which do we prefer, the show or the film? Marissa? Um, It'd be hard for me to say, because it's been a long time since I've seen... The, the play version in honesty but like I like both for both you know the the film for it just as a filmmaker or as a film person I enjoyed the movie I I, I think the storytelling it made me understand things a lot better even though I couldn't tell the timeline but it <laughs> it, it conveyed things in ways that I didn't get from the theater aspect but I, I do enjoy live production as well because I find that actually more engaging mm-hmm. I, I think I'm I'm right there with with you, Marissa, I feel like there are certain things that you you can't get um, from you can't translate from theater to film. Some of those interaction moments and some of the being able to fuck with the timeline, you know. Um, but there are certain things to me about this film that are really interesting and really wonderful, and I, I like a lot of the cast members. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I mean. Had I seen the film first and the show after, maybe I would have liked the film a little more. Um, I think seeing the show first gave me this expectation of the film that it didn't meet for me. Um, that being said, like I said before, like the acting's amazing. Um, I do appreciate that they still gave us those extra little scenes that we got to peer into their lives, but I'm going to go theater on this one. Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Um, All right, guys, that's about it for us today. Uh, Next week, I will not be here, unfortunately, but Jackie's going to take the reins. We're doing View from the Bridge by Arthur Miller. And I also did an interview with um, Tana Frederick for the play Sylvia that was on Spotlight On. I've posted it on Broadway Breakdown, the um, at Broadway Be Down, so you guys can find it there. Yeah, and you guys can find us, like she said, on Twitter at Broadway Be Down. We have a Facebook page. Uh, make sure you like, comment, subscribe to YouTube right here uh, down below in the comment section. Let us know on our iTunes. Please, please, please comment, rate, subscribe there as well. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll always shout out your little notes that you give us. Um, let us know what shows you want to see us do. 
I'm, where can they find you lovely ladies one last time? One, two, three, Jackie B on all platforms. You can follow me singing the song at Serafini TV. <laughs> and you guys can find me at bfips14 on Instagram and Twitter. And later tonight, 8 p.m. on After Buzz TV for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend if you're a musical fan.